Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and it is episode 101 on the Recording Lounge Podcast. It is May 19th, 2017. Thanks for joining us today for part two of our studio maintenance series. Now, if you're just joining us, make sure to go check out our part one first. Uh, this whole series is talking about just running a studio, maintaining a studio, things to keep in mind when it comes to gear and, you know, taxes and aesthetic and keeping water around and all kinds of just like business related stuff and just things to keep in mind when running the studio as well as nerdy gear stuff as well. So make sure to go check out part one. So part two is jam packed with information. Again, use these episodes to your advantage, reference them, listen to them over and over again, make notes, send me questions or comments. If you have them, uh, just send me an email recording lounge podcast at gmail.com. Today we're talking about a lot more stuff. So sit tight. Uh, let's check out a song real quick. I've lived a double life, built walls to hide behind. I've shown my face at times just to be seen in the light. I've walked these shoes, learned every excuse, trying to fake a love to be true. Listening to the song Then I Met You by Christian artist Eden Trentum from here in uh, Oklahoma. And uh, seriously, one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on. Such a talented singer, talented songwriter. Um, we had a great team of musicians on this album. We had string players, we had, you know, bass, drums, and I played guitar on the record. And I mean, she's just got a dynamite voice, and it was just a really fun project. Took us a long time, but it finally uh, got finished, and it releases, I think, this coming week. Uh, so again, it's another album that I finished. I feel like I, I just have to show you guys that I'm 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 not lying. Like I'm actually working on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like that's why episode 100 and 101 took so long uh because I really am like working on albums full time it is my job so anyway <laughs> uh I hope you guys enjoyed that uh go check out her music uh, it's uh edentrentummusic.com that's e d e n and then t r e n t h a m music.com and I will say for whatever reason and I have no idea why this is the case but uh, if you put a www before the link, it does not show up. So, Eden, if you're listening to this, go check that out on your website. Something's weird with that. Or you can just Google her music, uh, Eden Trentum, and you will find her stuff. And her album is about to be released on iTunes and Spotify and all the above. Uh, check it out. It's really cool. 
So we're continuing our discussion today on studio maintenance, and our first section to talk about is studio aesthetics. Now, when I'm talking about aesthetics, I'm talking about the way that your studio looks and the vibe of your studio. Now, uh, I used to be like one of those people that was like, oh, that doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Musicians don't care, like, you know, what color my walls are or anything, you know. But at the same time, uh, I had an experience one time. I had a professional session drummer uh, tell me one time that he loved my studio and it sounded great, but my studio uh, lighting looked kind of like a hospital. Uh, <laughs> so... You know, and we were kind of joking about it. Like, he wasn't mean about it or anything, but I was like, you know, what do you mean? And he was like, well, it's just, you know, it's just not super vibey in here. Like, you know, he's like, I'm thinking of like, your studio has so much potential to be like super vibey with like some lamps and lights and like colored lights and stuff like that. And he's like, a lot of studios in Nashville are, you know, really dim and, you know, they're really cool and intimate and vibey. And I could have been like offended or like, ah, I don't care, screw him. But I, I really took that advice to heart. And so I started making tiny changes here and there. I started, you know, getting some lamps and changing out some bulbs and, uh, you know, using lower wattage bulbs and using, um, you know, these LED Edison bulbs, you know, the sort of like vintage styled light bulbs, which have a nice warm, like amber color to them. And lo and behold, I started getting compliments on it from clients that were like, man, it looks great in here. Like this place is super vibey. And like, maybe they didn't ever speak up before, or maybe they didn't care. But when you start getting compliments on it, you start thinking, man, like maybe that does really matter. And so I thought I would take a minute to talk about various elements of studio aesthetics and, and just studio aesthetics in general, you know, to make your studio look cool. Now, um, me and uh, another engineer friend of mine always joke that one of the biggest ironies of home studios is that home studios always try to make themselves look more professional and pro studios always try to make themselves look more homey. Um, and so it's just kind of ironic, but it's true, you know, and I guess the goal here is that we want our studio to be comfortable. We want it to look cool and be, you know, just be enjoyable overall to be in. And, you know, there are some elements of this that I am certainly no expert in at all. I am not like an interior designer by any means, but uh, hopefully I can give you at least a couple tips uh, regarding studio aesthetics. So the first thing I would say is uh, about lighting. Now, lighting is something that I have sort of become a little bit obsessed with over the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, like track lighting is really common in studios and it's great. It's not that expensive and, uh, you know, it looks really nice and can w light a studio very well. So I do recommend track lighting just in the general sense. But then we go on to talk about the bulbs. Now, uh, one thing that I got into over the last couple of years has been these LED Wi-Fi bulbs. And if you're not familiar with those, uh, they're super, super cool. Essentially, they're like these Bluetooth Wi-Fi LED bulbs that you control from an app on your phone. And I use the Lightify uh, series of bulbs, which uh, unfortunately, they're not cheap. The colored bulbs are like $40 a piece. Um, so yes, they are kind of expensive, but what's really cool is the colored bulbs can do, you know, standard, like normal lighting colors, like in different color temperatures, like just like soft white or bright white or whatever. But then you can also do like any color in the spectrum that you can imagine. I mean, any shade of red or orange or yellow or green or blue or whatever. 
Um, and so you can really sort of fine tune the vibe in your space and you can create scenes where these things are sort of memorized by the app and it'll recall different sort of lighting scenes. Uh, and it's really, really cool. So they also make uncolored bulbs, which I also use, um, that allow you to just control like the brightness and sort of the color temperature of the bulbs, uh, but you can't change the color. Um, and they're really, really useful. They allow you to quickly dim all the lights in your studio. And because here's another big feature of these, because they are all digital essentially and controlled by the app and, you know, uh, they're, they're wireless. Um, you don't have any issues with noise when you dim them. Um, as you guys might know, uh, dimmers often create noise problems in the studio. And so if you really want to get dimming, you know, uh, to be, to be able to have dimmed lights in your studio, you either need to use lower wattage bulbs or you have to get some expensive, you know, like transformer to put into your wall to dim the lights without getting noise problems. But typical, just normal, like dimmers with a little slider will often cause noise problems in the studio. Not always, but often they will. So what's great about these is I can pick any color shade that I want and dim them or make them bright or whatever. And overall, it's just contributed a lot to just the coolness of my studio. And I'm really, really happy with it. And, uh, you know, again, it, it is pricey. It is something you have to save up for, but you can write that type of thing off and, you know, just consider it. Um, like I said, there are lots of other ones out there, not just the Lightify ones. Um, I think there are lots of other ones that people use. I, I couldn't name them off the top of my head, but uh, go check those out. These sort of like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, uh, LED bulbs. Another thing I will like to mention is, you know, I do recommend LED bulbs in general, not only because they have an extremely long life, but they don't really produce a lot of heat. Uh, so that keeps your studio cool. And uh, generally, like, cooling the studio is the bigger problem than heating. You know what I mean? Like, musicians get hot. They don't get cold, really. So, um, you know, LED bulbs in general, I think, are, are recommended. And, you know, if you can pick up some of those, uh, like, Edison-style, like, vintage-style light bulbs that have sort of the warm amber color, uh, th those look really cool. And I know it seems kind of, like, stereotypical... You know, but it, it makes a difference. It may, whatever, even if it's 2% difference, but, you know, when people come into the studio, they feel like it looks cool. It looks like a studio. It feels real. They feel like they're, you know, like if you walk into a car dealership and it looks like a terrorist organization, like <laughs> you're not going to feel very confident about buying a car from them. You know what I mean? Like, but if you walk into a car dealership and it's super nice and clean and, you know, the people are dressed well and it's professional and all this, you're going to be like, wow, like this place is the real deal, you know? And so it does make a difference. Whatever small amount it makes, it does make a difference. So I also recommend getting some lamps. Um, now you can get lamps at any number of places, garage sales, estate sales. You can get them at, you know, Walmart or you can get them at Salvation Army or you can get them at Goodwill or any of these places. Like there's tons of places to get cheap lamps and get them at any like sort of consignment stores or, you know, like flea markets. Uh, don't spend a ton of money on lamps, but, you know, I would recommend lamps. They look cool. Um, they allow you to sort of control the light with the shade, you know, the lampshade and, and, and make it sort of just smooth and soft lighting. And I have, you know, a handful of lamps just all around the studio with different types of bulbs and stuff. And it just, it just looks cool. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about with lighting is how much lighting is needed for various things. Um, I do recommend having some way 
to vary the lighting a little bit, you know, and quickly. Um, and I'm not talking like you, you don't have to have like ridiculous amounts of, of control, but just enough where you can turn certain lights on and off very quickly and easily. I find that singers tend to prefer dim lights, but not so dim that they can't see their music or their lyrics. Um, you know, obviously if they've got like an iPad or something like that, they don't need to worry about that. But, you know, you keep the lights dim for singers. They tend to just feel more comfortable and more, you know, like they're in their bedroom just writing a song or something or, or singing a song. It's less annoying than having all these lights shining at them. Um, drummers tend to like lights that aren't too dim, but also not too bright. Uh, what they don't want is stuff in their face. Okay, so I try to keep the lights, I generally will make the lights sort of a off like a red color to kind of give it a warmer appearance and keep make sure the lights aren't in their face. Um, that can just be really annoying. Most guitar players and bass players don't seem to care. Um, you know, the other thing I will say is that when dealing with lighting, you got to be a little bit careful when it comes to people bringing in cameras or having camera crews or video crews because those those people generally need more lighting than um, people want. Uh, now, not always, but, you know, an experienced photographer can work in any light, but a lot of times studios are rather dim and uh, it can be difficult for photographers to get good shots. And so sometimes they'll want to like bring lights and all this stuff. And I've said this on other shows before. Don't let photographers or video crews get in the way of good performances. Just don't let it happen. Take control of the moment and say like, hey, you know, snap a couple pics and then we got to do this vocal. Like I don't want you know, that's a distraction. Uh, and also like the camera shutter can make a click like in the background. So that's annoying. Um, anyway, just don't, don't go crazy with lighting, but also don't ignore it. You know, it's important. It does add to the vibe of your studio a lot. And there's so many options out there. Um, you know, chandeliers and lamps and like, uh, up lights and, uh, I mean, all kinds of stuff out there to research. And for the longest time, I ignored it. And um, it's really paid off, I think. You know, people come in and they think that my studio looks cool. And that same drummer uh, has commented, like, dude, it looks great in here now. Like, it looks like a real deal studio. And again, it's one of those things that does seem a little bit, this whole, like, aesthetic section, it might seem a little bit like, you know, surface or something, you know, like it doesn't really matter. And no, it doesn't matter. It's definitely icing on the cake. Um, but you know, icing is great. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not all about the cake. Like the icing does help. So, uh, yeah, that's lighting. All right. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is seating. So chairs, couches, things like that. And I also want to talk a little bit about rugs. So I, I always think it's really important to have a couch in a studio. That's like total personal preference. But, you know, couches on a st in a studio are really comfortable. And because there will be people who aren't working at some moment and they want somewhere to relax. You know what I mean? Like not everybody in the band is going to be recording necessarily all at the same time or there will be downtime between takes. And so having a nice, like comfortable couch, something that you would enjoy sitting on is to me really important. I really like the couch that I've got here and people comment and say that it's comfortable. I had another couch before that somebody gave me for free and I was like, hey, it's a couch. It works. But, you know, I started noticing, you know, bands kind of making little comments about how it wasn't super comfortable. Uh, and so I got a new couch and, you know, it's it kind of sucks to spend that money. But at the same time, they're going to have people here for long hours like 
you they should be comfortable like you don't want any again we talked about this on the last show you you want to remove any part of an experience for them that might come off as negative so having a comfy couch is a nice plus the other thing that i would highly recommend is for yourself get a nice chair um, to get something that you will feel comfortable in that will support your back that you can sit in for a long time and something that, you know, probably has uh, maybe a bar at the bottom where you can put up your feet. Um, just something that is comfortable that you feel comfortable working in for long hours. Now, for guitar players and bass players and people who will sometimes sit when they record, um, I, I much prefer having uh, soft chairs as opposed to stools. I find that stools can get a little bit rickety and creaky. And so I like having sort of like normal, you know, uh, ch nice chairs that are soft, but have no arms. Okay. Uh, you got to find something. And there are lots of chairs out there that are like this. You can find, um, that are soft and comfortable, uh, that will support someone if they want to lean back in it. You know, it does have a nice strong back to it, uh, but it also has no arms, so it won't get in the way of their guitar or bump, you know, stuff like that. You get what I'm saying. And because it's soft, it won't, it has the potential to make less noise than like a hard chair, like a folding chair or a stool. Um, and I've really had good luck with that, uh, having like a soft chair around for those people. So I, I have two matching chairs, one that I keep in the control room and one that I keep in the live room um, for people to sit on. Uh, and for drummers, I do recommend having a nice drum throne in the studio. Don't get just the bargain basement like drum throne. I really recommend the nice like rock and sock form fitted uh, drum thrones that are much more comfortable and will help a drummer feel more comfortable while they're playing. Again, it's all those little things that even though having a nice drum throne might contribute 1% to the overall performance of a drummer, you know, that 1%, you know, that'll add up. You know what I mean? Those little things can add up. Comfort levels do add up. Like, think about yourself, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, you don't want to be like uncomfortable recording. You don't want to be in an uncomfortable chair. If you had an engineer who was like, oh yeah, sit on the concrete floor. It's like, really? Do I have to, do I have to do that? I mean, do you just want to remove all of those things that could cause discomfort or anything to distract them? from putting in an awesome performance. And I find having a good drum throne is really helpful. And 90% of the time, people use my drum throne because they find it more comfortable than their own. So yeah, even though chairs and seating doesn't seem that important, you know, again, it's all a little bit of the equation and that's all about studio maintenance. So another thing I'd like to talk about is rugs. And rugs are, uh, you know, kind of pricey sometimes, and they vary so much in design and color and look and all that. But I think rugs are really important in the studio. And you got to be careful with rugs because rugs do absorb sound. And they absorb sound in different ways. And it also will absorb differently based on whether or not you have a rug pad under them. So let's talk about rugs a little bit. I have three big rugs in my studio. I have one very large rug in the live room. I have a very large rug in the control room. And I have a rug in the booth, the guitar room, uh, guitar room slash booth. And all of those rugs are sort of like color matching to that room. You know, they, they fit with the color scheme of that room, which again, it's just that little extra 1%. But, um, 
one big factor that a lot of people don't think about is a rug pad. Now, rug pads are great because they protect the rug and will make the rug last longer. Uh, They sort of cushion uh, the blow of people walking on a rug, and they keep the rug from sliding around. However, rug pads do increase the absorption of rugs. Now, rugs mostly absorb high frequencies, you know, 2K and above, stuff like that. Uh, And, you know, they can really deaden room significantly if you have too many of them or if they're too thick. Um, So just be careful of that. Like, you have to realize that rugs will absorb sound. Like, don't just ignore that fact. It's not just for aesthetics. Um, So a lot of times rugs, like in my live room, my rug is basically the one of the only things in that room that's absorbing high frequencies. Most of my traps on the wall are actually uh, sort of range-limited traps or membrane traps that have a reflective face to reflect high frequencies so the room doesn't become too dead. However, the rug is obviously not that way. And uh, in the drum room, in in the live room, I also have a rug pad. I have half of a rug pad underneath uh, the rug. I have uh, the rug pad underneath the drum side. And on a, once the drums are done, it's not there. I know it sounds a little strange, but um, I, I've done tests. I've, I can prove it. This is why I did it that way. <laughs> I've done the measurements. So uh, when you put a rug pad underneath a rug, it will increase the absorption and absorb quite a bit in the sort of like 1 to 2K region. And that is an important region. And you can't have too much there, but you also can't have a scoop there because that's a really sensitive region. And you guys know this who've been doing it for enough time to know that like 1 to 3K is a really sensitive region to the ear. It's very aggressive. It can be, you can't just scoop it all out. You need it. It's really important. But um, you also can't have too much or it starts to sound like quacky or kind of like, you know, knocky uh, or harsh. So be careful when uh, getting a rug pad for your rug. And I'm talking about those sort of like, a lot of times they're like a gray, they look sort of like a mixture of like felt and fabric uh, rug pads. Um, You can get them at uh, rugpadusa.com, I think is where I ordered mine. Uh, Let me just double check that rugpadusa. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) rugpadusa.com. And they have tons of rug pads from all varying prices. And rug pads are not super expensive. But just be aware that uh, especially the thicker the rug pad you have, the more they will absorb and the lower frequency, to the lower frequency they will absorb. So, you know, a really thick rug pad that's like half inch thick might absorb all the way down to like 700 hertz. If you need that, then use it to your advantage. But if you don't need that, it can actually kind of deaden your room in that area a little bit too much. So just be cautious of that, okay? In my live room, having the full rug pad was a little bit too much. Um, It seemed to scoop out that area in a weird way uh, and make the decay times like oddly short in that region. Uh, And when I removed half of the rug pad, and like I said, it's a large rug. It's like 9 by 14 or something. It's, It's big. It's a big rug. Um, and when I removed half of the rug pad, uh, it sort of evened out again. And, um, so I did that, but anyway, just keep in mind that rugs and rug pads will affect your absorption. Uh, and so you might need to get a smaller rug or a smaller rug pad or no rug pad. Uh, in my control room, I, I did keep the rug pad, but I did not keep all of it in my live room. 
So just keep that in mind and make sure don't get something that isn't going to hold up to lots of use. Um, you know, you need something durable. Don't get like the, you know, the little cheap, cheapo rugs. And also don't get like a shag rug. Like that's just kind of weird and not, you know, you want something that's durable that will hold up to people putting pedal boards on it and rolling gear across it and standing on it while singing, you know, something that will last you a long time. I do find that musicians feel more comfortable when uh, sitting or standing or uh, on a rug as opposed to just on a hard floor. I know it's not much, but hey, again, it's all about those little details. So I just wanted to briefly also mention uh, something about candles. Now, uh, I'm not I'm no expert in candles, but I do know that having a candle around, you know, can make the place smell nice. And, you know, a lot of people out there, you know, might be like rolling their eyes at this. But it's like, you know, musicians aren't the best smelling people in the world. Let's all be honest about that. We can just take a moment and, you know, acknowledge that. And, you know, having a nice smelling candle in your studio not only provides just a little bit of light and sort of like, ooh, cool, a candle, uh, but it can make the place smell nice. And that is especially helpful uh, in a live room where, you know, you get sweaty players and sweaty musicians. And, um, yeah, so just wanted to mention, get a nice candle or two for the studio and you will thank me later. So another tip that I've got for you that sort of happened to me by accident, uh, sort of a two-for-one happy accident here, was uh, getting a curtain um, for my window between the control room and the live room. So initially, I thought that the window between the control room and the live room just looked a little dull, and I was like, man, is there any way that I can spruce this up? And I thought about putting lights around it or something, and I said, you know, what if I just put, like, curtains on the sides of it just to kind of make it look nice? So I got that, and I thought to myself, you know, that might actually come in handy later. And so I did some tests, and it actually had two big benefits. Uh, The first big benefit was when mixing... Uh, having those curtains in front of the window closed actually will prevent some high-frequency reflections from coming back at me uh, while mixing. Now, it's pretty subtle. I mean, it's like above 4K, 5K, but I mean, hey, it's something, it's measurable. I could prove that it does help and it does tighten the phase a little bit and the frequency response just a little bit. So, hey, that's something, right? Now, the second thing came through just experience testing where... I found that in certain situations, closing the curtains for a vocalist um, really helps them sort of get out of their head and ignore anything that's happening in the control room. One of the best examples of that is when you've got a full band here, you know, five people, and it's time for the vocalist to record vocals. Well, a lot of times when I'm doing vocal sessions, I prefer it to just be me and the singer. But if the band is here, you know, they'll be all behind me. They'll be maybe like on their phones or laughing or whatever, carrying on. And it's a, it can be a real distraction um, for a singer in there to look over and see people laughing. And they might be thinking like, are they laughing at me? Did I just sing something bad? So to remove that, especially if you've got a full band here, um, you know, you can close those curtains and sort of make it like they're in their own private little world. And sometimes that can really help a singer just sort of get in the zone and forget about everything else going around them and just sing and deliver a great performance. So, hey, that's a two for one. Curtains aren't that expensive. You can go really expensive, but I didn't. I just went to Lowe's and got some curtains 
Uh, if you're not familiar with Lowe's outside of the U.S., it's just a hardware store. Like it's they're just like normal, you know, home improvement curtains, not any designer or fancy anything. I think they were like 30 bucks a piece, one for the left and one for the right. And then the curtain rod was maybe like 50 bucks. So, you know, just over 100 bucks. And and it's a pretty large window. I mean, it's a, it's like three by six, I think, something like that. So it, it's decently large. Um, but yeah, little improvement that has actually come in handy quite a few times. Another aesthetic tip that I have is to display stuff that you've worked on, you know, albums that you're proud of. Um, put them up on the wall, you know, ask your clients for a CD or vinyl or whatever that they've got and put it up on the wall or put it somewhere where people can see it. Um, I mean, obviously don't put up the stuff that, you know, you're not proud of. (laughs) I mean, you don't have to at least, Uh, but put up stuff that people can see and be like, oh, you worked with them. I know those guys. And, you know, that's just one more thing, a little tiny thing that, uh, that can make it be like, wow, when they step in the room and they see these records, um, you know, and again, this is a bit of a nod to like those guys like Michael Wagner who have just like gold records and stuff all over their wall. You know, I don't have a gold record or a platinum record to my name, but I still am proud of the work that I've done with certain bands. And so I put their albums up on the wall. People see them and they can look through them and say like, oh man. And and another great thing about that is people will often look at certain albums and say like, hey, do you know who did the artwork on this album? And you can become a resource and say, hey, we'll just, you know, open it up and check it out. I can find their info for you if you need it. And, you know, that's just one more like added bonus that you can help put their mind at ease to something that all bands have to go through, which is figuring out who's going to make our, you know, CD copies, who's going to do our album artwork, who's going to do all that stuff. You know, that's something that often bands put off way too long. So to have albums in the room, they might be more likely to think about it early on, which is a good thing. Most bands need to think about it from like day one, what they want the album to look like rather than an afterthought, right? Um, Now, I know that the CD is kind of dying, but vinyl is kind of making a, a comeback. And album artwork is still important. You know, you can still upload album artwork onto Spotify and iTunes and all those platforms. So, I mean, it exists and it probably will exist forever. So anyway, it's just another cool thing to be able to show things that you're proud of, things that you've worked on and, you know, might inspire a couple of ideas or stories or they might, you know, hopefully they don't uh, feel bad, be like, oh man, this album sounds like crap. Uh, I hope ours doesn't sound like this. <laughs> so, you know, be careful with what you put up there. I mean, put stuff up there that you know sounds good and that you're really proud of. So that actually reminds me of something that one of my session bassists and I call the black shirt theory. Now, I, I was talking about albums and like, don't put up stuff that people would hear, would see and be like, oh, crap, I don't like the sound of this. Well, we have this theory called the black shirt theory or the black t-shirt theory. And it basically is that if you wear a black t-shirt and you're a musician or an engineer or sound guy or something, nobody can have any reason not to trust you about your opinions on music or things like that. And I'll give you an example. One time I was wearing a t-shirt of a band that I used to like when I was growing up. I've had that shirt forever and it's all worn away. And I had a band come in. And they saw the shirt and they were like, oh, man, I haven't thought of that band in a long time. And I was like, yeah, man, I grew up listening to these guys. And they were like, man, I hate that band. And it was a <laughs> it was kind of a really awkward situation, but it it taught me something very simple. And again, this might seem really stupid, but 
you know, one of the most important elements in the music industry between players or between engineers and musicians and all this stuff is trust. And you don't want to present any ideas or like extreme ideological like things on your person that someone would look at you and immediately form these notions about who you are. Because obviously we know that's not fair. That's not a smart thing to do as like, a thinking, feeling adult person with emotions and also like tact. You shouldn't just look at a person and gauge their entire personality based on what their t-shirt says. However, we are also human beings and we do that, right? Like if I see somebody walking down the street with a Nickelback t-shirt, my brain might immediately be like, wow, I will never be friends with that person, right? So... (laughs) I, I mean, it's it's just natural, right? Like, so, you know, the black t-shirt theory has never really proven me wrong. I've never really had anybody say anything to me if I'm just wearing a black shirt. And that's why he also has experienced that. He is a session bass player and he's also a touring bass player. He plays on the road with bands all over the, the country and a lot of work in Nashville and stuff like that. And, you know, he often will wear just like a simple, like plain colored shirt, like a black t-shirt. Or sometimes if he's playing with a country band, he'll he'll just wear like a simple like plaid shirt, no logos, no like sayings or like political candidates or anything like that that might give people ideas of like, who is this guy? Now, again, some of this sounds stupid and like you shouldn't have to think about that. But at the same time, a lot of what we've talked about today and on episode 100 is like we want to remove any reason for them to have a bad experience or for them to not trust you or for them to feel like they're not comfortable. So, I mean, just for example, obviously all of you guys know about the 2016 presidential election here in the United States. It's a very heated debate still to this day, and it probably will be. And, you know, imagine the tension in the room if your clients are all supporters of candidate A and you're wearing a T-shirt of candidate B And, like, that's really emotional and serious for people. And, like, that kind of sets a very awkward tone in the room, wouldn't you say? And, like, you're not naturally just going to strike up a conversation about it. And you probably shouldn't. But, you know, those types of things, like, people have strong opinions on things, on, you know, politics, on religion, on music and movies and celebrities and, you know, all these things we all have opinions on. So... If you choose to just wear a plain colored t-shirt or something without logos or anything like that, you can't really have anything to be blamed for. And you can keep your opinions to yourself and because that's not really what this is about, right? Like you don't need to be sharing those things in those contexts. Like it's a little more professional, in my opinion, to just leave your personal like, like keep yourself a little bit anonymous. You know what I mean? Like keep it like a strict business relationship where these people don't know everything about you because again, like you want them to trust you and that you want them to look up to you and be like, this guy, this guy is going to take our music to where it needs to go. And so, you know, take it or leave it. I know it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I've got proven track record. So does this bass player. I mean, it, it, you can't go wrong with it. So at least consider it from time to time. All right, so that wraps up our discussion on aesthetics. We're going to listen to a bit of a song real quick and come back and talk about some more studio maintenance stuff. Guys, I hope you're sticking with us. I hope you're learning a lot. Enjoy this song.
This is the song Elevate by the band Connolly, a really cool band from Oklahoma City that I have worked on a couple songs with. A really, really fun band to work with, very quick and creative in the studio. Uh, we tend to lay down stuff very quickly and come up with great ideas, and we just tend to work really well together. So uh, I've had a lot of fun working with them, and this is the second song I've done with them. And uh, yeah, enjoy it. We're going to play a little bit more of it and get back to our conversation. that song and I love that band they're a lot of fun to work with and um, I hope I get to work with them a lot more in the future uh, so check them out on iTunes and Spotify they're definitely worth a listen so the last section of this podcast is entitled building slash business stuff now I'm going to be talking a little bit about sort of managing the building a little bit or managing your studio space and I know we've been talking about that in general but just some other various things to consider and we're going to talk a little bit about money and some tax stuff just to help you out. So let's get started on that. So the first thing I want to talk a little bit about is humidity and temperature control. Now, I think we've talked about this a little bit in previous podcasts, but I just wanted to uh, reiterate. Um, I generally find that somewhere around 70 degrees and 45 to 55% humidity is very comfortable for people and for instruments, okay? Uh, there are a handful of different recommendations for how much humidity should be in your room when it comes to instruments, and it generally tends to be around 50% humidity and or relative humidity, however you want to call it. So what that generally means is you're going to have a dehumidifier in the summer and a humidifier in the winter. And I have both, and it is really, you feel like a crazy person because you take out humidity all summer long, and then you just put it back in in the winter. Now, you can have some integrated systems, and if you've got, uh, if you've got like central heat and air, then it's a little bit less of a problem, but it's still a factor. So I highly recommend having a digital thermostat or thermometer and hygrometer in your room. I have three of them. I've got one in the live room, one in the control room, and one in the booth. And they display, I'm looking at it right now, uh, let's see here, they display 
the humidity up top and the temperature down bottom, and they display uh, it is 72 degrees and 50% humidity right now. It's perfect. And um, it also shows the 24-hour high and low, which is really helpful if you haven't been in the studio for a little bit and you want to just make sure it hasn't been crazy in here. Um, Anyway, uh, those are like 20 bucks a piece. You can get them on Amazon or eBay or whatever and probably get them for like 10. Um, And they're just useful to know what's going on in your room. And I've got my dehumidifier over there. It's been raining like crazy the last couple days, so it's been running all the time. Uh, unfortunately, those things are loud and take up a lot of power, so they are on their own outlets, okay? I've got what I would call appliance outlets over on the west side of my studio, and I plug in my humidifier and dehumidifier into those. So not only is that on its own circuit, it's not, you know, anything related to audio, and if you measure the draw from those devices, a dehumidifier can take like 9 amps. I mean, it's ridiculous how much power those things consume. However, um, you know, like I said, they're on their own circuit. They're on a separate outlet. I don't have any noise problems with those. I do generally have to turn them off, though, uh, at least the dehumidifier when people are recording because that thing is loud, but it works really, really well. It can pull out something like uh, two gallons a day. Uh, and if you're outside of the U.S., I'm sorry, you can do the conversion on that. But it's a lot of water, okay? <laughs> it's a lot of moisture. It works really, really well. Um, and then I've got a humidifier that has two gallon tanks that I fill up and I, in the winter. And it, it, it lasts a lot longer. It'll last, you know, two or three days, uh, just sort of trickling humidity into the room. Uh, in the really cold parts of winter, you know, January around there, um, it can get really dry and you don't want that. I, I would say a little bit more humidity is better than not enough because not enough humidity can crack instruments. Now, uh, you know, obviously too much humidity can bow wood and bow instruments, put them out of round. If they're drums, um, you know, they can warp the tops on acoustic guitars. But I mean, most places tend to regulate humidity decently well because um, when it comes to too much, because, you know, in the summer, you've got a lot of humidity, but you've got a cooler temperature in the in the room. Whereas in the winter, you've got a, you know, a, a warmer kind of warm-ish uh, room, but you've got a very cold outdoors. And, and generally, the disparity between those is much higher. So like in the summer, it might be 90 degrees outside and 72 degrees inside. So, you know, that's only like around 18 or 20 degrees. But in the winter, it might be 30 degrees outside and 70 inside which is 40. So it's a lot more. And so it sometimes can seem, at least to me where I live in my experience, it's a lot easier um, to deal with a little bit higher humidity uh, than it is to deal with not enough. Um, but like I said, the humidifier itself, it works really well. It's It doesn't, you don't need to fill it up as often as I take out or empty the dehumidifier. Anyway, I'll stop rambling about this. Point is, I recommend somewhere around there, 70 degrees-ish and 50% humidity. You know, buy the stuff you need to buy. It's really important, especially if you've got acoustic instruments, drums, stuff like that. Uh, And it's just generally comfortable. Keeps singers from keep getting dry throat when they're singing, when the humidity in the winter is really low. You know, making sure just the humidity is comfortable for everyone. I highly recommend that. So one piece of equipment that everybody should have in their studio, I don't care if it's in your house or in a separate building, 
you need to have a fire extinguisher. Now, thankfully, I've never had to use it before, but a good friend of mine is a fireman and he said, you know, people really need to have a handful of fire extinguishers around their house, like one in the kitchen, one in their bathroom, one in their bedroom, you know, maybe one in the kid's bedroom, you know, if you got kids, uh, one in the living room. He's like, you never know when you might need it. Like you can hide them away and make them, you know, not seen because they're not, you know, the prettiest things in the world. He said, but it could save your life. It could save your house. It could save your family. Like, you know, spend the 20 bucks on each one and get a couple of them and put them around in places where fires might start. Like having one in the kitchen is probably a good idea. Like you never know when that type of thing could happen. Okay, it sucks and I don't want to think about it and I hate thinking about this studio going down in flames, but I have a fire extinguisher now in the studio for just such an occasion that hopefully could you know, stop a fire before it gets too big and protect my instruments and my gear. Um, but that leads me to my next topic, which is insurance. <laughs> so uh, insurance is really important. And there's some some confusion, at least here in the United States. I'm not sure how it is in other parts of the world. But here in the United States, your homeowner's insurance policy generally will not cover your equipment if you are using it for a business. Um, I have had friends who have had things stolen, and the, one of the first questions that their insurance company asked them is, you know, do you use this for a business, or, you know, is this just a hobby, or, you know, because what happened was he had a bunch of music equipment stolen. And, you know, he was like, well, I, I am a musician. I'm a professional musician. And essentially, they only gave him about half as much as, you know, uh, he really needed. And that's because he he's supposed to have a business policy or an inland marine policy or a specific policy for musical instruments. Now, again, uh, I apologize to my listeners overseas. I'm, I don't really know how insurance works in other countries um, or how what it covers, all those types of things. But here in the States, um, generally the best thing to do is to get a policy specifically for musical equipment. I highly recommend a company called Music Pro Insurance. They have policies for musicians uh, and, you know, and also for people in the studio. You can essentially insure... Uh, any piece of gear that you want, and there's a couple of really great things about it. Number one, um, the deductible is a hundred bucks. So if anything happens, you pay a hundred dollars, and there you go. Like the duck, that's a super low deductible, right? Um, the other great thing about it is that your rate is directly based on how much stuff you insure. So if you really only want to insure like a couple of pieces, like your really expensive stuff, like a couple of nice guitars or like your computer or uh, stuff like that, then your rate will be very, very low. And if you get more money, uh, you know, you can insure more things and, you know, pay for that as you go. You don't have to just insure everything right away. Like it's told it's a percentage based on what things you're specifically insuring. And number three, the best part about Music Pro Insurance is that it doesn't matter where this gear is, whether it's on a plane with you or in the car or at a gig or in your studio, it is insured. Uh, which is a lot of peace of mind for somebody like me that I, I sometimes will play gigs and, you know, sometimes I'll do sessions at other studios and I'll bring stuff with me. And so, you know, that is a huge load off my mind. The only downside with Music Pro that I have found, at least, is that you have to pay your premium in full, which means, you know, when you uh, essentially 
put in all your info and sign up and blah, blah, blah. You know, they give you the number that is your annual price, uh, your annual premium for being, you know, on the insurance plan and you have to pay it in full. And so that's the only downside. It's not a monthly thing. And at least to my knowledge, they don't plan on doing a monthly thing. And I'm not really sure why, but that's just the way it is. But again, insurance is there for peace of mind. They're not really selling insurance. They're selling peace of mind, right? Um, So I highly recommend getting insurance specifically for your gear and make sure that, uh, you know, and don't worry about it on your homeowner's policy because it'll just jack up your rates for that. And, um, you know, just, just get something that is specific for your business, for your music gear. Now, if you're just doing it for a hobby, um, your stuff is probably covered under your homeowner's policy, but if you're making money at it and, you know, they will find out, (laughs) then they might not give you as much money as you need to reimburse the cost, or they might not give you any. It really depends on the insurance company. So just be aware of that. Be careful and good luck. So the next topic I wanted to talk about briefly is sort of like studio hours and studio rules and like contract stuff. So uh, I get some questions every now and then about my contract that I use for clients and uh, about studio time and things like that. And the first thing I want to talk about is studio hours. So I, I get some questions about why I chose the hours that I chose and, you know, why I, you know, just what's the deal with that. So my studio hours are generally 10 or 9 to 7 or 10 to 7, depending on the situation, Monday through Saturday. And I try to not work on Sundays because I just need a break, right? Like it's a long week that ends up being, you know, 9 or 10 hours every day, 60 hours a week is very common for me. And often I'm working, you know, because of my night class on Mondays. Uh, you know, that's an extra four hours. So it ends up to be like 65 hours a week of, of audio stuff very, very often. Um, so some people have said like, well, why don't you just have fewer hours? Well, I, you know, I've tried and I, you, you just got to be as flexible as you can sometimes. And there's a common myth like, oh, you own your own business. You make your own hours. And anybody who owns their own studio knows that's not really true. Like, yes and no, you know, like you, you do set your own hours in a way, but if you set your hours too strictly, you'll never get clients, right? Like you'll never get work. If you're like, well, I'm not going to work on Saturdays. Good luck working with musicians. Okay. Because they all want to work on Saturdays. Why? Because musicians have day jobs, they don't always, you know, they're not always doing music full time. So they're working in restaurants and banks and churches and, you know, schools and they're, I mean, they're all over the place, right? And so they have day jobs very often and they want to work on Fridays and Saturdays and things like that. You know, they don't have the luxury of a lot of professionals in LA and Nashville and New York that do music full time uh, and can just come in on a Monday at 1 p.m., Um, so my hours being nine or 10 to 7 PM, um, on Monday through Saturday generally have worked out very well for me. I do have some clients that will request late sessions and sometimes I do that. It depends on the client. Um, and I do have some clients that request sessions on Sundays and I do sometimes do that because again, you gotta be flexible. And a good example of sometime when I do that is when I have people from out of town, You know, if they're coming in from out of town, uh, I will very often do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday type thing. Um, And I don't like doing that. I don't like, you know, getting my whole weekend sort of taken away from me. Um, But 
you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I don't want them to have to like come back. And again, I don't want them to sort of have a bad impression of the studio and be like, man, we really just need like another little bit. Can you not make any time? And, and again, I could be hard about it and say, no, I, this is my strict times. I don't work on Sundays, but it's just not worth it to me. I want to get stuff done too. I, I want them to feel like they got stuff accomplished and that their experience was good. And I want to cross stuff off my list because if they have to come back, that means I have to take like another Saturday and Saturday is a very valuable day for me. Right. So it's just sort of a game that you play and you're constantly working with it. Um, but those are generally my hours and I try not to work too much past them. At the same time, it is currently 2.36 a.m. right now. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, very often I am out in the studio late working on things like this. So if you count the hours that I'm out here, uh, not working on official business, I don't even want to know how many hours that I work. <laughs> So I wanted to talk briefly about my contract and sort of like studio rules and things like that. So I'm going to open up my contract and just sort of go over it a little bit and sort of bring you through uh, just some of the basics and how I've come through um, this. I've come to this contract that I have now that I've been sort of refining over the years. So uh, initially, it just has up the top contract for project payment, uh, recording, blah, 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 the closet studios. Um, and I have four artists, you know, I fill in the artist's name up top and I have sort of an introduction. And it starts with studio terms and conditions. Um, and first of all, and again, this is all based on my experience and things that I have just run into over time, questions that I have. Uh, and I've just decided to put them in here. Some of them are like actually like legal things. Other are, others are just more like studio rules or conditions, right? Uh, so the first one basically, uh, the first term basically says like, um, I understand that the producers slash engineers involved in the making of this record must deliver the project at the negotiated price. And I also agree that blah, 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 the band will pay that price, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, it's all worded well and everything. Uh, if the price changes, you have to do an amendment contract for project price adjustment must be attached to this contract blah 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 that's basically the first term that basically says um i'm gonna do the work and you're gonna pay me we agree to that um number two is a sort of uh royalties um term that basically says i'm not going to take any royalties from your music that is something that I have done as a business decision. I don't take any points on records that I do. And it's because early on, I noticed the way that the music industry was going and that artists were getting paid less and less. And I didn't want to start doing projects uh, for points only to realize that artists weren't making any money from their records and then realize, man, I should have just charged cash. So I operate as a completely cash-based business. Uh, I don't take any percentages or points on records. And so essentially that that uh, term, number two, basically just says, I don't own your music. I have no stock in it. I take no points. I take no percentages. You pay me the price. We're good. 
Um, and but I also acknowledge that it's illegal for uh, for the artist to not sort of give credit to people that worked on the album. You know, essentially, it's illegal for them to if someone was a producer to just leave them off of the credits or to not mention them is te- technically like kind of illegal. Um, so at least by my terms, it is by the terms of this contract. Um, so and again, this is all worded nicely. And I had a lawyer look over it, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just sort of going over this anyway. Uh, number three, it talks about, uh, this is a big one. It's the responsibility of the artist slash client to keep in contact with the studio in order to schedule studio time. The studio will not keep track of personal schedules of clients. And so clients must use calling, texting, or email to get in contact with the studio to schedule dates for their sessions, meetings, CD pickups, etc. So that was verbatim what's in the contract. And that's something I put in a long time ago. And the reason is... I often, like, it seems so simple to me to schedule t- studio time. The best way, if I'm, an, if I'm a musician, is to text an, a studio or call a studio or email a studio or an engineer, blah, 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 and say, are you available this day? Yes or no. I've talked to the band. We've figured it out. Are you available this day? Um, and But so often, bands think about it in reverse, and they say, you know, send me available dates. And... That's fine. Like, I get that. But um, to me, I look at it almost like uh, they need to, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, okay? But the way that I look at it is I don't keep track of your schedule. And so if I tell you, oh, I'm free on the 20th or the 23rd or whatever, then they have to go and ask the band and confirm and work all that out. To me, it's much more efficient for the band who already knows their schedules to settle on a date and then shoot me a couple of options and I can just say yes or no. To me, that's more efficient. And so I put it in there so that they would know, like, you keep track of your schedule and you just shoot me dates that you guys are available and I'll say yes or no. So, and it's mostly because I got annoyed at people texting me, texting me like, hey, send me available dates. It's like, I do this every day. So, I mean... I'm booked for the next week or two, um, but after that, I'm doing it every day. So we're back to square one, where you still have to ask your band and your bandmates when they're available. So to me, it's just it saves a step. Anyway, um, let's see here. Number four, uh, let's see, talks about um, the project start and end dates and the goals and uh, not drag your feet, basically. Uh, talks about that we're going to try to make this goal, although it's not set in stone most of the time, uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, number five, clients are expected to be very prepared, blah, 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 blah. I talk about, you know, bring in guitars that are set up and have new strings. And, you know, if you're, you bring in drums, like bring in some drum heads and, uh, rehearse, like, like I just kind of, again, this is not really legal. It's more of just like a condition, like, please be rehearsed coming to the studio. Like, I promise I won't waste your time if you don't waste mine. Like, I'm not here to be your band manager or your music director, but I'm here to at least tell you like, hey, be prepared. Like, don't be learning these songs like the day before. Like, know your stuff, right? And again, you can put whatever you want in your contract. I decided to put that in there as term five. Um, Okay, term six. Uh, The studio operates on a strict you break it, you buy it rule. 
Uh, I hate putting this in there and it does seem lame, but I've had people break stuff and they just kind of look at me like that was an accident and it's an awkward situation. Like I don't, I mostly put it in there because of that. And, and it doesn't happen very often. I think in 10 years of doing it, I've had three things break, uh, at the hands of a client. Um, so it's generally not a big deal, but still, uh, I, I put in there, say, you are more than welcome to use our instruments, guitars, amps, drums, cymbals, etc., to get the sounds that you want. But if something is broken, uh, the repair or replacement must be paid for by the client. And that's because, essentially, like, I take care of my stuff, you know, and if you're using uh, a guitar or something and you break something, even as simple as a guitar string, right, like... You broke it. So, you know, and, and again, I hate putting that in there. And I've even considered taking it out before, you know, and just like if something like that happens, just somehow figure out a way to pay for it or do it with insurance or something. But that's the thing. I just put it in there just to cover myself. Uh, number seven, I'm talking a little bit here about um, the client's vision and sort of goals for their album. And I essentially reiterate, like, you need to be prepared and be have a good idea of what you want. And I talk a little bit like, obviously, if I'm producing, I will be working with you on this. Um, but especially if I'm not producing, like, it's your music. We want it to shine. We want it to come through how you want it. So, like, don't think that I'm here to, like, impart my sound, blah, blah, blah. And again, I don't have to put that in the contract, but I put it in there as almost like a, hey, just consider this. Remember, like don't wait until the last minute to be like, you know, sitting in the studio and be like, well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think this song should be rocks, a rock song or a country song? I mean, it's like, come on guys. Like that. And again, that's just my opinion. That's how I run my business. I don't like people to save that stuff until the day of. Okay. Like if, if somebody's renting out like three weeks of studio time and like really making a record, sure. We've got time to do that. But a lot of times we don't have the time to just sit around and be like, um, so what is it supposed to sound like? You know, like I want people to come in with those ideas and, you know, be thinking about it from the first second they decide to work with me. Uh, number eight goes over my mix revision process. So I have three mixes, mix A, mix B, mix C. Mix A is my first mix, uh, and then they give me revisions, and then I make mix B, and they give me revisions again if need be, and I make mix C, which is the final mix, and then it's sent off to mastering. Uh, we don't always need a mix C. Sometimes we stop at mix B, and it's good. Um, sometimes we run into other hurdles, uh, but generally speaking, I also talk about how the master is the only one that should be sold and released to the public. Um, and again, I can't really like instigate that or anything, but uh, that's pretty much what I try to say in there, <laughs> uh, because I've had people in the past and it sounds stupid, but I've had people in the past who like, I'll send them mix a and they're like, yeah, man, sounds amazing. And then they'll like post, post it online. And I'm like, no, like it's not done. <laughs> like, I know you're excited. I know you wanted it yesterday. I, I swear musicians are some of the most impatient people. Uh, I've ever worked with. It's crazy. They wanted their stuff done yesterday. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I have to put this stuff in there to be like, chill out. The final mix is going to be the final mix and then it's going to be mastered. Okay. Either by me or by somebody else, but it's going to be mastered. And you know, that's the one you need to release. Anyway, uh, number nine, 
Uh, I talk about how I have the right to post finished mixes on my website, whether or not they have been released, whether or not they've been copyrighted, or whether or not they have been sold or released to the public. And I say that because I don't want people to be like, don't put this on your website if it's something I'm really proud of. Uh, because like, I want to put stuff up on a website that I like. And if they're not going to let me do it, like I just threw that in as part of the deal. Like that's something I want. I want to be able to post their music to my website if I want to. And I've had certain situations where clients are like, uh, no, don't post this until we release the album. And then they either don't release the album or it just gets pushed way far back. And I have a potential client who wants to work with me and they want to hear some of that stuff. And so I just put it in there like, hey, if you agree to this, you know, this is part of the deal. I want to be able to post that stuff on my website. So do we have a deal or not? Um, number 10, I talk about my studio hours of operation. Uh, I talk about what one full day is equal to, which is 10 hours. Uh, half day is equal to five hours, uh, blah, 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 blah. It includes setup, teardown, and breaks. It also includes lunch. Uh, evening sessions and Sunday sessions may or may not be available. Uh, that's another thing. Some people, they're not clear on whether or not like, oh, does setup count? It's like, of course setup counts. Like, <laughs> of course it counts. Like, to studio people, that's obvious. Like, no, I'm just going to like not charge you while I'm working and I'm only charging you from the minute we hit record. Like, no, you're, you're here. We're working. We're setting up. Uh, same thing with lunch. Like, I don't care that they're at lunch. I'm still, they're still on the clock. Um, now that's kind of a two edged sword because instead they'll then bring fast food here into the studio and stink up the whole studio. So that's kind of, like I said, a two edged sword, like, because they want to keep working. And the thing that sucks about that is that if they're like, oh, well, we're on the clock for lunch, so we'll just keep working and you guys go get lunch, which means that I don't get lunch. And that happens more often than I would like to admit, but it is true because bands are that desperate for money. I find it ridiculous. And I could very well be like, um, no, guys, I'm going to eat. Um, and that's yet another reason why I like to keep some snacks around the studio. Number 11 talks about, uh, oh, this is my personal issues clause. And this is something that uh, I decided to put in here, and I'm really glad I did. I'm going to read it verbatim. So it says, sometimes there are personal issues, health issues, or family emergencies that come up for the studio owner, producer, client, engineer, etc., others involved in the project, etc., uh, which may cause delays. And that is understandable. We promise to be patient and understanding if you do the same. If a project needs to be put, in, put on hold, this contract is valid until otherwise documented. So I put that in there because I have had clients go through some serious stuff uh, in the middle of a project. Divorces, family members dying, um, children dying, uh, mothers and fathers dying, uh, car accidents, you know, people like getting serious diseases and like being in the hospital for a month. Like people, I mean, all kinds of stuff has, has happened, right? In the last 10 years of doing this. And, and so I want people to feel some relaxation about that. Like, hey, if I if something happens to me, like I'm not over here, like, you know, scowling at them, like, what's the deal with this person? But similarly, I put it in there because if I get sick, I don't want people to think that I'm like, you know, people are, you know, customers can sometimes be uh, a little bit, like I said, impatient. And, you know, they kind of think the world will revolve around them a little bit. And so I put this in there as sort of like a, hey, we're human beings, stuff happens. 
let's all be patient and like, I'll be patient with you. Uh, you be patient with me. If one of us is sick, like, and I even also put in here later somewhere uh, down here in this number 11 says like, if you are sick, don't come into the studio. And that's because like, I do not want to get sick. I don't want the studio to have like germs all around it because lots of people come in here all the time and I am out here all the time and I can't afford to get sick um, because that delays easily three or four people at once. You know what I mean? Anyway, number 12, uh, after the project is completely played for, project files recruited. Okay, so this basically says like, once you've paid for your project, the files are your property. Like you can bring an external hard drive and you take or a flash drive or whatever and get your files. We recommend you back it up, blah, blah, blah. I say that I'll keep the files archived on my, my backups for five years. Uh, I actually keep everything forever, but I put it in there just so, you know, people won't call me 10 years later and be like, hey, can you give me another mix? Uh, but I actually never delete anything. Uh, anyway, number 13 talks about, uh, mix changes, alt mixes, revisions, live tracks, etc. Basically say that will be subject to an hourly fee. Uh, so sometimes people will come to me later after we've finished a track and be like, Hey, can I get, uh, you know, an instrumental mix and a vocal down mix and a TV mix and a vocal only and, uh, you know, all these different deliverables. And they just sort of expect me to give it to them for free. And it's like, um, no, because that takes a lot of time. Um, you don't, you know, anybody who's been doing this for a while knows that like rendering is, it takes more time than you realize, you know? And, and if you render something, you know, like a normal mix and then like a vocal out mix and then like an instrumental mix and then like a vocal only and all these different deliverables, like you're looking at easily 30 minutes or an hour per song. If you have five or 10 different things to render, you know, it could take five minutes or something to render a song. And so, you know, you multiply that by how many deliverables you have and then uploading them and all that stuff and organizing them. Like it can actually take quite a lot of time. So I don't do that stuff for free anymore. Uh, so I put it in there. Number 14, um, alternate mixes and masters will need to be made if vinyl is being pursued. So I put that in there because vinyl is obviously becoming more popular. And I've had clients be like, oh, yeah, we want to release this on vinyl. And they say that at the last minute. And I'm like, OK, I need to do different things on this mix for vinyl. Um, as we've talked about before, there's the episode a couple back with uh, I say a couple back quite a while back with Garrett. We talk about uh, mixing and mastering for vinyl um, and just some of those various things. So different mixes and masters need to be made for vinyl as well as, you know, digital release. Uh, so I put that in the contract so people are aware of that. Uh, let's see, number 15. I talk a little bit about mastering and the default uh, mastering studio that I use, sort of a partner of mine, and uh, give some other recommendations. I say your, your project needs to be mastered regardless, blah, 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 blah. Please discuss mastering. Uh, okay, number 16, song cancellation policy. All right, this one is another one that sucks, and I had to learn it from experience. Okay, so I'm going to read this one verbatim. It's really important. Uh, if a project is scheduled for X number of songs and this contract is signed for said number, it is expected that this number of songs will be completed. If a song or songs is slash are removed from the project at any stage for any reason, the client will pay a song cancellation fee. This is because the project price depends on the number of songs being produced, mixed, etc. Please schedule your projects wisely. All right. Now, 
what does this mean? I had to start doing this because um, I once had a project that scheduled like 15 songs with me and they signed a contract for a very large amount of money. And uh, we were all set to go. They had booked out like three or four weeks, like a whole month basically of time to do this. And then like at the very last minute, they were like, hey, we decided we just want to do a single first and then we're going to do an album later this year. And they signed the contract for 15, but that clause was not in there. And so essentially in a nutshell, I didn't really have anything I could do about that. Like they signed a contract for that, but I hadn't done any work yet and they hadn't paid me yet. And so I was kind of like, well, I can't. So I called my lawyer. I was like, is there anything I can do? And she was like, well, not really. I mean, you haven't done any work and they haven't paid you. So you've both sort of not made this. I mean, in theory, you need to have a clause in there that essentially says like, uh, if you cancel a song, is there any sort of fee or, you know, uh, charge for this or anything? And so she's right. And so I put this in here and that's because of that exact situation. And so what I do is I charge a hundred dollars for every canceled song. And so when people see that, they're like, oh crap. So if this band had canceled their, you know, 15, 14 out of 15 songs, they would have had to pay me $1,400 of a fee um, for essentially doing nothing. And of course, they wouldn't have wanted to do that. And I do that specifically to cover my butt because I had booked out all that time and I told all these other potential clients like, no, I'm going to be booked out that month. I can't do it. I lost some work because of it. It was a really bad situation. So I highly recommend uh, you put that in there. Um, okay. Number 17, health slash substance, substance policies. Uh, number one, please do not come to the studio. If you are sick, we are in a confined enclosed insulated building and we don't want any sickness to spread. Uh, please do not bring any illegal substances or drugs into the studio. Number three, alcohol is allowed. Just don't go overboard or get trashed. It wastes time and makes things harder on both of us. And we talked about that earlier in the show and I just put it in there just so, again, we don't have to make it awkward and talk about it, you know, during studio time uh, or in the moment where they like someone brings in some cocaine and I'm like, oh yeah, don't do that. I don't want any cocaine in here. And then it's like a really awkward situation. So I just put it in the contract. Don't have to worry about it. They can read it. They can decide, you know, all that stuff. Um, uh, number 18 this is, uh, this is one, again, I put in there from experience. I don't have to put this in there, but I put it in here. CD release shows slash CD release parties. Please do not schedule or book an album release show until you have the finished product in hand. This is not a rule, but rather a strong suggestion. Trust us. Um, so that's what it says verbatim. I put that in there because I cannot tell you how many times projects run into speed bumps and, oh, look, uh, the mix gets delayed a couple days. And then the mastering, because it got delayed a couple days, he's now backed up on something. And now the mastering's delayed a week. And then, oh, look, the weather was bad. So you couldn't, you know, the, the mailing off your CD took a little bit longer and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the shipping took longer. And, oh, look, you missed your CDs or you're not going to have time to get your CDs or you have to pay an incredibly high fee to get rush shipping for your CDs. And that's somehow my fault that you scheduled your release show like way too early. Okay, like I said, bands are really eager and artists just in general are really eager. They want their stuff done yesterday. So I put that in there just to get bands thinking like, 
don't don't schedule your release show based on what you think when the album might be done or when you think the mastering could be done or when the mixes probably will be done. Don't do it until you have a finished product. It's just the safest thing for everybody. I know it's annoying. I know it takes time. But like, who's rushing you here? Like, are you in some big hurry? Like, do you have six months to live? Like, what is the huge rush about waiting an extra month or something? Make sure that we're done, that it's done in hand. You have it. And then we're good to go. Then you can schedule it and know you're not going to have to rush or worry so many bands like push that part of the process up to the last minute like they get their cds like two days before their release show it's ridiculous and it's stressful for everybody it's stressful for me because i get that phone call or i get that text like hey man we scheduled our release show for like three weeks from now like is it gonna be done and i'm like guys what are you doing Like, that's not my problem. You know what I mean? Like, it really is not my problem that they scheduled their release show um, when, like, I'm trying to make a record. What What are you trying to do? Like, I'm trying to make this awesome. And if it takes an extra week, it needs to take an extra week. Um, you know, and obviously like I try my best to get things done in a timely manner. Um, you know, we all try, but stuff happens, you know, people get sick. Uh, last, one of the projects I worked on recently where this happened, I had like an ear infection and my ear was clogged up and like, I couldn't mix for like three days. It's like, I'm sorry. I can't do anything about that. Like you don't want me to mix when my ear is clogged up because I can't hear Uh, I had to go to the doctor and I had to go actually to like an urgent care center and get my ear like uh, irrigated because it was like hurting me and I had wax blocked up in there. And I mean, it was, it was not fun. Right. And so it's like, and the band was all upset about it. Like we needed the mixes on Friday. And I'm like, guys, I'm sorry. There is nothing I can do. You made the mistake of scheduling your stuff way too early before you knew, what, is it done? Is it almost done? Anyway, so I just throw that in there. Uh, anyway, after those are all my terms. After that, I have the payment agreement, which basically, basically just says the price is X. Uh, that is for X number of songs. Uh, the rate is X per song. Uh, I have a price breakdown, blah, blah, blah. I have uh, the agreement payment method. Um, I only allow three types of payment methods, which is the full, am- full amount up front, um, half up front, and half at mixing start Um, And for returning clients only, I allow one third up front, one third at mixing and one third when it's finished. Um, Now, most of the time I recommend people do full full amount up front, Um, not only because it's easier for me, but it gets everybody's mind off of it. And again, bands want their stuff yesterday, so they want to start recording before they even have any money. And it's like, cool. Uh, name a restaurant that you can go to before you have the money. You know what I mean? It's like, guys, you save up for a record and then you do it. Like it's, it's not that hard, but bands, you know, they're, they're super eager. I love their passion. I love that they're excited, but guys like calm down and save up and make a record and bands that have been doing it for a while, they do that. And they don't even think about it. They say, they call me, they get a quote. They say, how much is it going to be to do this? I tell them a price. If they if they like the price, they say, okay. And then they're going to save up their money. And then they call me in a couple months or whatever. And they're like, all right, I've got the money. Let's get this going. Or they do a Kickstarter or whatever they got to do. Anyway, 
uh, after this, I have uh, my consent, the producer slash engineer slash mixer consent. It basically says, I agree to all the above. Then I have the client consent. It says, I agree to all the above. I understand and agree to all the terms and conditions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then I just have sort of the basic contract agreement that has project title, uh, project start and end dates, uh, date signed, signatures, 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 blah, 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 blah. Contact information. And that's my whole contract, okay? It's six pages long. Uh, I've got a bunch of other endnotes and stuff like that. It's at the bottom, and it essentially clarifies the terms and conditions above, kind of like I've been clarifying them to you, that the endnotes kind of clarify some of those things above for people to read more about and get more details about and blah, blah, blah. Um, okay, so the last thing in the podcast that I wanted to talk about was tax stuff or tax ideas or tips for dealing with taxes. Um, now, again, I apologize for people that are not in the United States because I'm not quite sure how your taxes work. I've never done taxes in another country. Uh, so perhaps some of these things won't be super, super useful to you. Maybe they will be. I don't know. So, um, if you guys are fans of the show and you've heard me mention it once or twice uh, over the course of the last 10 years, uh, or I guess of the podcast, eight years, I actually went to school for accounting. Uh, I did not go to school for music or for audio, uh, and I dropped out of school. So, uh, but while I was there, I learned a lot about accounting, and I've always been a big fan of using Excel. And so, still to this day, I keep all of my records in Excel. And some people would advise against that. They'd say, no, I need to use QuickBooks or Quicken or one of those things. But I actually really like Excel. Um, it allows me to do a lot of things that I like to do. And I understand it really well. So I use Excel to keep records of everything. And I just highly recommend keeping good records of everything that goes on. Whether it's, you know, that you got paid money, somebody owes you money, you owe somebody money, uh, you bought a piece of gear, you sold a piece of gear, you know, all of that stuff should be in record. And the more you do it, the more you won't even think about it. It doesn't, it's not that annoying. I mean, I probably update mine every single day when it comes to it. Um, but I don't even think about it anymore. I've been doing it so long. And it also allows you to analyze your progress and see how much money you're spending on this and that, on this category of thing. You know, like how much money have I been spending on guitar stuff in the last five years? I mean, you can actually, you, you know, keep track of that stuff and really essentially make your own like analytics for your own business and really learn things about your business. And it's been really helpful for me because I can make ch uh, charts and graphs and, and, you know, find data from all kinds of things like, uh, you know, how much I've spent, how much I've made, uh, how, you know, and I even put a lot of personal stuff on my, on my spreadsheets, um, when it comes to, uh, tax stuff and I put in my wife's income and things like that. So just so I have a better idea of what I'm going to owe on my taxes and all these types of things, just, and, and um, it's constantly updating. Um, it also gives me sort of, because of some of the formulas I've got in there, it gives me lots of predictions, which will sort of warn me about rough months that might be coming up or even good months that might be coming up uh, or if I'm not sort of meeting my goals or my uh, sort of projections for the year and it, it kind of just keeps me in check in all facets of my business and I highly recommend just keeping good records if you're not keeping records you know, you're really going to regret it um, so definitely keep good records of everything that you do and 
The next thing I wanted to talk about is write-offs. So what things are write-offs and what types of categories are there? Uh, so again, this will probably be a little bit more relevant to people here in the United States. But uh, in terms of write-offs, we have quite a few different types. We've got assets and we have expenses. And those expenses fall into a handful of categories. Advertising, communication, contract labor, legal and professional fees, home office expenses, repairs and maintenance, uh, supplies, travel, utilities, uh, other expenses, you know, things like that. Those are your categories, essentially, uh, for filing expenses. So the way that I do it is I organize all of my expenses based on what they are. And that when it comes time to do my taxes, um, entering those in becomes very easy because they're already organized in my spreadsheet. And so I have then groups that show, hey, how much did I spend on advertising this year? And it shows all of those things and it gives me the sum. So, you know, all of that is really useful to me. Um, just make sure that when you're doing write-offs, you're you're writing off essentially everything that you can. Um, whether, I mean, there's so many things you can write off from mileage driven for your business to like business cards, flash drives. Uh, I write off my Dropbox subscription and my Microsoft Office subscription because I use it for my business. I don't use Excel really a lot for fun. I almost exclusively use it for studio related stuff. Um, I write off a portion. Uh, let's see, I write off uh, a lot of recording lounge stuff, um, my cost of bandwidth and hosting and all that stuff. Um, I write off uh, Evernote Premium. I use Evernote uh, on my phone for to keep notes. If you're not familiar with it, it's just like a note-taking app that you can do like photos and videos and text and all this stuff. And I pay for Evernote Premium. Um, I write off all the coffee and water and beer and cups and trash bags and all that stuff. And of course, I write off all the gear. And the gear is divided into certain categories and things like that. Um, but just be really careful. I wouldn't worry too much when you're doing your taxes about deductions so much, like special case deductions. Um, you know, when it comes to the studio, most of your stuff is going to be an asset or an expense. And the really the main difference between those, if you're new to this and you and you need some advice. Assets are generally things that are sort of long-lasting pieces of equipment. Things like a computer, that's an asset. Um, things like uh, nice speakers or an instrument, those can be assets. Those are things that you plan on keeping for a long time um, that help your business grow and work and, you know, you need them to function. Whereas something like, you know, uh, a guitar pedal might not be an asset. It's not very expensive and you don't want to have to enter in those assets all individually. And it also doesn't have much depreciation to go if it's only like a hundred bucks or something. Um, so generally for me, assets are going to be instruments, um, computer, uh, any uh, like drums or anything like that, um, big stuff, okay? And all the other small things are generally expenses. Um, microphones are generally assets for me. Uh, so are any, any outboard gear, that's all an asset. Um, big stuff, right? Those things I plan on keeping for a long time. And you can also spread the deduction out over a number of years, the Section 179 deduction. So essentially, why would you want to do one or the other? 
Well, I would say if you've made a lot of money this year, I would recommend just taking the deduction of full this year to keep your taxes lower for this year. Um, but if you didn't make a lot of money this year, which especially those of you that might be starting out, you know, I would recommend spreading out your deductions over a couple years. Those first couple years are really hard. Uh, and you know, you're going to take a loss very often in your first couple years of business. Um, I did, it's very common. I was spending a lot more money and I didn't make a lot of money. A lot of it was just personal money spent into the business. And I hardly made any actually from clients. Um, I spent almost every spare dollar I had. So, um, anyway, that's up to you again. I'm not your accountant. I'm just giving you advice from personal experience. Um, so let's see what else I wanted to talk about. Uh, okay. So I wanted to briefly talk about home office expenses. Um, and again, this applies to the U S listeners. I'm Apologize to all my listeners overseas. Uh, and maybe this is the same for you. I don't know. I hope your tax code is not as complex and weird as the United States. Um, God bless you for that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so home office expense. Um, here's a little bit of hard knocks that I have learned from the home office deduction. So I actually wrote off my studio as a home office. Um, because I was trying to figure out how I wanted to classify the studio and because it, it is a separate building and it's on my property and it does have a separate entrance. And that's sort of the criteria necessary for a home office. It needs to have a separate entrance. It does not have to have a separate address, but it needs to have a separate entrance um, to sort of classify as a home office or at least in a lot of cases to get the full deduction or something like that. I'm not sure of all the details, but anyway... Um, one thing that I noticed is that uh, they essentially make you deduct that over like 30 years or something. So when I put in my initial cost of building the studio, it was like I only saved like a couple thousand dollars that year. And I was like, all right, something's wrong with this because my taxes are insanely high and I just built this really expensive studio. What gives? So uh, I called my accountant and I asked him what he thought. And he said, well, how about this? How about you write it off as your, like your studio building, but what about your air conditioning system? Wasn't that really expensive? And I was like, well, yeah. And he's like, that you could consider an upgrade or a, you know, a building cost or an expense rather than just lump it in with the sum of the home office. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. So I did that. Essentially I took, I subtracted that cost from the home office and put it as a, a repair or upgrade, or I forget what the category is, um, something like that. Um, and it helped reduce my taxes a lot and a whole lot. And another thing that I did was I, I switched over a couple other things like some of my LED lighting and some of my other like little special things that you don't necessarily need for a home office, but that I did uh, here in the studio. But the basic structure of the building, the work to put it up, the walls, you know, the drywall, the paint, the floors, um, the the majority of the structure I wrote off as a, quote, home office. Um, but a lot of the other things, the, you know, uh, decorations, um, the couch, uh, my desk, uh, things like that, my air conditioning system, 
what else did I, something else I wrote off, uh, a couple other little things I wrote off as essentially expenses uh, or upgrades to the home office rather than uh, just lumping it in with the sum. And that allowed the deduction to, um, to be taken this year. So again, that's my tip. Um, I know there are probably some accountants that would agree, disagree with that. Granted, that was like five years ago. So I guess we're good. Um, so anyway, um, that's a tip that I have is be careful if you want to build a studio on your property, um, that, you know, you might have to be thinking about those sorts of things rather than just trying to lump it all into home office. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is I'm not sure how it all works with a commercial structure because I don't have a commercial facility because my studio is on my property. I don't have a commercial facility out, you know, downtown in a warehouse or something like that. Um, so I don't have any advice for that. I would recommend calling an accountant. Um, I dropped out of school a long time ago. And so I know a lot about accounting, but I'm not an accountant. Okay. So <laughs> like, I'm not certified to give you tax advice. These are just things that I have picked up along the way. Uh, and so, you know, take that at your own risk. You can completely ignore everything I've said if you want. That's totally fine. Um, but it has worked for me and uh, I've gotten better at doing my taxes over the years quicker and more efficiently by keeping better records and just thinking a little bit more about this upfront and just running my studio truly like a business. Um, so guys, that is everything that I had to talk about in these two episodes. I know there's a ton of information in these episodes and I really hope that you can learn a ton from these two episodes. I mean, it's, it's almost like three episodes or four or something. Um, you know, uh, but I really wanted to do this. Uh, it's been a long time coming to do this series, uh, studio maintenance, because there's just so many little things that I wanted to talk about that didn't really fit in their own show. And I just thought, you know, let's just bundle them all together and do a huge blowout and have a big celebration, basically. So uh, anyway, guys, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, uh, please feel free to email me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. If you have tax questions, please don't send me your questions. <laughs> please call an accountant. Uh, you know, uh, please get advice from a professional. I'm an audio engineer that has some accounting experience and that, you know, does okay with my accounting. Uh, but my situation might not work for you. Please call an accountant that can give you true advice. Same thing goes for the contract situation. If you're not sure, you know, I would recommend just doing what I did and sending your contract to a lawyer and having them look over it. Yes, you'll have to pay for it, but you can write off legal and professional fees on your taxes. So that's exactly what I did. Um, you know, it's just worth it. Call a lawyer, have them look over your contract, tell them what you do. I'm a studio owner. This, these are my terms and conditions. Can you look this over and, you know, see if it works uh, and see if there's anything I need to address. Um, and hopefully some of the things that I brought up in that, uh, in that, uh, section will give you some ideas of what to put in your contract. I do recommend having a contract by the way. Anyway, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com for questions, comments, show suggestions, uh, podcast episode ideas, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Go leave me a five-star review on the iTunes uh, podcast feedback or reviews tab. That's really helpful. 
please uh, consider donating or uh, pledging just a dollar on the Patreon page, a dollar per episode or five dollars per episode, just a couple bucks per episode. It really helps to keep this podcast going. And I really want to keep this podcast going. And I know you do, too. Um, it, it is getting expensive and it's very time consuming. As I said, um, you know, it takes a lot of time to make these shows and it takes a lot of space to host these shows. So guys, just please consider doing that for me. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. You can go to recordingloungepodcast.com uh, for that info and click on the tab that says support RL. And speaking of, you can find basically anything you need regarding Recording Lounge at recordingloungepodcast.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel and sign up for our mailing list. Whew. I uh, hope you guys learned a whole lot from these episodes. Uh, be well, and we'll talk soon. Thanks.